we live in a world that is inundated, indeed dominated with need. So just sampling the news this week, our government needed to borrow $300 billion this week alone, the highest amount they've had to borrow since the financial crisis back in 08, just to keep our programs running. Our president needs a new legal team. Facebook needs a good new PR firm. Oklahoma teachers need a new salary package or they threaten to walk tomorrow morning. And Loyola Chicago, they just needed to hit a few threes last night. They're going to have any chance of making it on to that final game. Friend, I just wonder though, as you've come this morning, what do you need? How would you answer that question? What do you need? And I sampled my email inbox yesterday and apparently I need to check my credit report. Always a good thing. I was told I needed a new pair of raw denim, and I forwarded that to Trey. <laughs> I need a new Bermuda vacation package. That last one sounded pretty nice. These cold, rainy Easter mornings. But maybe you woke up thinking, oh, I really needed a new Easter outfit, or I just wish my son would actually put a comb through his hair. I don't, I don't know what needs you may have had this morning. But if you stop and, and are more honest with yourself, and reflect more deeply for a moment. I'm guessing your most pressing needs are, are much greater and more personal than even that. You might have come needing a way to see through mounting credit card debt. You might have come with a need to be reconciled to a family member or the, the need to have a f good medical care professional to help you with, the, with an illness. Maybe you need a job. Maybe you even need a place to live this morning. You know, need reflects something we lack, and so maybe another way to ask the question is, what do you fundamentally lack this morning? Employment, finances, health, relationships, stuff? Well, regardless of how you answer that question, the Bible actually says there is one thing that all of us need, one thing we all need, and it's a lot bigger than success, significance, security, even a spouse. Well, what could that need possibly be? Well, friends, to... To answer that question, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians, to the New Testament book of Ephesians, if you have a Bible with you, Ephesians chapter 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible this morning, no worries, we have uh, red Bibles there in the seatbacks before you, and you could turn there to Ephesians 1, you can find it on page 976, page 976. And if you're just joining us last week, we began a study in the book of Ephesians. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of largely Gentile, that is to say they're not Jewish, Christians in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus was a, was a bustling port city. It had a constant influx of travelers, traders, sailors, and they would have had fresh money to burn. And so Ephesus became known for its materialism, for its overt sexuality, Think of it sort of as Monte Carlo meets Vegas. Just at the time, much bigger, much more wealthy, and we know from Acts 19, a lot more hostile to Christians. In many respects, Ephesus reflects increasingly the values of our own society. And it's into this hostile environment that Paul writes this letter to these new Gentile Christians struggling to understand what does it look like to be a Christian, to follow Christ, to walk with him. And so he opens, as we saw last week, with this volcanic eruption of praise, really this, this avalanche of praise. With phrase after phrase, he leaps on top of one another, all to try to drive home and emphasize this point, that they are, despite whatever struggles they have there in Ephesus, they are blessed. 
They are blessed. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing and supports places. That's the the main idea. 4 to 14 all supports that idea. And yet, despite all that God's done, we can say we're blessed, and yet we still feel very much like we have needs. And as I said, there is one need that our text is going to help us to see, one need we all share in common. And friend, that's a need that, that no politician, no attorney, no accountant will address with you. It's a need that only God will address with you, that he himself will help you to see. And the need that he helps us to see this morning in our text is that, that we need liberation. We need to be free. What we need is redemption. We need redemption. And you may say, Brad, redemption, I don't know what you're talking about. I am free. I live in a free country. Declaration of Independence. Life what? Liberty, freedom, and the pursuit of happiness. We know these things. Well, friend, you may not be a slave to any nation or to any person per se, but I would argue this morning you've come in and you're actually a slave to something much greater, something much deeper, far more deadly. You're a slave to sin. A slave to sin. You see, most of the world, which means most all religions of the world, teach that inside we're inherently good. Strip away all the societal pressures. Cast aside the few weaknesses and vices, and what's left in here, it's shiny and pure. Like dulled silver, you just need a little polish, scrub some of those imperfections off, and we will be shiny and new. That's how we often understand ourselves. So the wrongs that we do, we like to think of them as more accidental, more occasional. They're more incidental than fundamental to who we are. But do you really believe that? Do you really believe that's true? So take something you might struggle with this morning, say anger. You know what it's like in that moment when you lose control. When you say things you would normally never say or never do. Things you're ashamed about, even embarrassed to to ponder and to remember in your own mind. And, And in that moment, you hate who you are. When you see the pain in a friend's face and a spouse's face, when you witness the hurt in your child's eyes, right? you're disgusted with yourself and you resolve and you apologize that you will never be like that again. And the world says, hey, that wasn't the real you. You were just provoked. You had had a bad day. You hadn't had a lot of sleep. You know, don't be too hard on yourself. But if you're honest with yourself, you realize that what came out in that moment, it actually was the real you. It was raw and unfiltered. That filter removed, and what you said was exactly what was in your heart exactly how you felt. And for just a moment, the real you was really on display. And everyone around you hated it, yourself included. And maybe an hour, a day, or a week, or a month later, despite every best intention, you fall back and do that same thing again. Friend, I say that because I just want you to see we're all slaves to sin. It could be anger. It could be acting out in lust. It might be lying to a teacher, maybe lying to a parent if you feel trapped or cornered in a situation. Maybe procrastination. Maybe you use others for your own selfish ends. Point is, sin's grasp in all of our lives, it's simply too strong. 
Sure, we take great pride when we seem to master some bad habit. You know, we chalk it up as a victory. Such victories, they do occasionally come, and they come with a great deal of effort. But friends, what we can't do is we can't break all our bad habits. Sadly, we, we think we've mastered one only to find that another has risen up and taken its place. If we're honest with ourselves, our victories are comparatively small and incomplete, whereas our defeats are numerous. They're always with us. Friends, that's because sin isn't just accidental. It's not just occasional. It arises out of who we are. Jesus understands this, Mark 7. He says, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these things come from society. No, that's not what he says. All these things come from inside, inside and make a man unclean. It's why Jesus says in John 8, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Friends, we need, we've come, and the great need is for us to be set free from our sins. We need, as I said, redemption. And the astounding promise of our text is that we can have it. We can have redemption. You, this morning, can be liberated from your slavery to sin. So if there's a, sort of an emancipation proclamation text in the Bible, like we've got it this morning, Ephesians 1, 7 to 8. So let's read verse 3 down to 7, 8, and we'll focus again on verses 7 and 8. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here we are, verse 7. In him, in Christ, in him we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verses 7 and 8. Friends, that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And I think to summarize what Paul's saying here, he's trying to communicate, friends, your sins have enslaved you. Only Christ can emancipate you. That's his basic point. Your sins enslaved you. Only Christ can emancipate you. And as we work through verses 7 and 8, there's sort of three movements I just want to think about. Three movements in the form of three words. Redemption, ransom, and riches. Sort of three little tags, so to speak, to hang some of our thoughts upon this morning. So thinking first, redemption. That first idea, redemption, verse 7, in him, Jesus, in him, Paul says, we have redemption. Now, it's not a word, redemption, we use a lot. For many, it has overtly religious connotations, but not always. So I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal just yesterday, and there was a columnist who was speaking about how Republicans, in their opinion, have thrown fiscal sort of 
restraint out the window. They've mortgaged away our children's future with this omnibus bill that was voted upon recently. And they said, quote, nonetheless, they can redeem themselves. You hear that word there? They can redeem themselves if they take these courses of action. In sports, sometimes we'll say, you know, LeBron, he had an off night. But he redeemed himself with a triple-double. The point is we use redemption when there's something precious that's been lost, something that has to be restored. And in the days of Paul, this word redemption would often be used for prisoners of war. So when a conquering army would take their vanquished foes, they'd take them as, as prisoners, and they would turn them into forced slaves. And if the conquered nation wanted to have any of those conquered soldiers back, they would have to pay a price. They would have to redeem them. They'd have to ransom and bring them back. It was used to refer to Israel's deliverance in the Old Testament from Egypt. So Deuteronomy 7, 8, the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Of course, if we get to the New Testament, as we see here with Paul, this deliverance of Israel from Pharaoh's chains, well, that just becomes a picture of our deliverance from sin's chains, right, through Jesus Christ. So speaking to my Christian friends here this morning, Paul's saying, he's saying, despite your past, whatever mistakes, the mess that you've made of your life, right, broken promises and broken lives that may have littered your past, he's saying, if you're in Christ, if you're in him, you have redemption, Just let that sink in for a moment. You have redemption. You've been freed. Notice Paul's not dangling that out before his readers as something that they just can't quite grasp, something just out of their reach. He says, no, you have it, as in you have it now. He doesn't say go earn it. He doesn't say merit it. He doesn't say acquire it through right living like nearly every other religion teaches. Nor does he say such certainty of your redemption is unattainable. You really can be certain of your salvation, of your redemption. You can know it. You can be certain. You don't have to live this morning under the constant cloud and doubts and suspicions. In him we have redemption. Have, present tense. The only present tense verb in Greek in these entire first 14 verses. The only one. So Paul's spoken of how God chose us, verse 4. He's predestined us, verse 5. He's sort of blessed, really favored us, verse 6. He's lavished his grace upon us, verse 8. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. He's given us an inheritance. He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit, verse 13. God has done all of this. He's the subject of every verb, past tense. He's done all that so that now we have redemption. Friends, it's a present hope that needs to be an encouragement, ought to be an encouragement to you. Because I think too often in the Christian lives, we can live as if our eternal fate kind of hangs in the balance. It's as if they're a set of divine scales. And sometimes, either because our affections for God are particularly strong or a list of sins is comparatively small, we feel like our relationship with God is in good order. Sort of the scales are tipped in our favor, and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But when our affections dim or our sins seem to increase on the other side, well, then the scales seem to tip out of our favor. And so as the scales drop, we try to double down and and work extra hard 
try to bring things back into line. But friends, this idea of the Christian life is nowhere in our text. It's nowhere in the Bible. Recognize, if that's how you view grace, a set of scales that you constantly have to bring into your favor, then friends, you're treating God kind of like a parole officer. That's how the Christian life has become, you know, where you, you sort of come to God, you come in for your regular sort of checkup, and maybe, you know, you sit down, so to speak, in that chair, shifting uncomfortably as this menacing God peers over his glasses, just sort of waiting for you to mess up, to make a mistake. And so long as you don't break the law, you're conditionally free, but the second you do something and you violate that parole, well, you've put yourself right back into chains. Well, friend, if God is not a parole officer. Right? That's not the picture here in the scriptures. He's our redeemer. He's cleared our rap sheet. All the record of our offenses have been wiped clean. Right? He is the one who satisfied that debt for us. So our hope in those moments doesn't rest in our own obedience, but in his obedience, which releases us and then frees us to serve God without worry and fear. Because we're not asking ourselves constantly, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Because we know he's enough. He is enough. The trial's been had, right? The verdict has been given. The case is settled. We have redemption. We have been forgiven of our sins. So particularly let this be an encouragement to you. If you've come and you're weighed down by sin this morning, maybe a, a present sin or a past sin that lingers and you still wrestle and struggle with, maybe you've done something even foolish this week. Friend, if you're in Christ... You have redemption, right? You haven't lost your redemption by your disobedience. You haven't lost it by your disobedience any more than you ever won it by your obedience. He has borne the penalty. Christ has put that sin away for good. And yet, friend, let it be a warning as well. Let it be a warning because we all possess this kind of fiendish ingenuity to when it comes to devising ways to bring ourselves back under bondage, we're so quick being saved by grace to then establish an elaborate set of rules by which we live our lives, and in effect, we create a new law to live under, every bit almost as oppressive as the law we were delivered from. But remember what Paul says elsewhere, Galatians 5.1. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So we live as those who are free, who know such freedom. Freedom from the power and freedom from the penalty of sin. We have, present tense, redemption. That's the great promise of our text. It's a great present hope. But how do we have it? How did this redemption come about? And that just gets us to the second movement, if you will, of our text. So we talked about redemption. Just hang secondly here, ransom. Ransom. That's our second movement, ransom. Because, friends, redemption isn't free. Redemption comes at a cost. So on my last international flight, they were playing the, uh, showing the movie Les Mis. Maybe you've seen the movie or, or seen the play, read the book. And there's a powerful scene in Les Mis where the, the protagonist, Jean Valjean, he's an ex-convict. He's turned his life around, and he arrives at the inn of a, of a young girl named Cosette. She's the daughter of one of the factory workers who died in his factory, and, and he's come for her. She's young. She's obviously being abused and mistreated, and she's in bondage to these crooked and unscrupulous set of innkeepers, and it's one of those tear-drinking scenes where Cosette, again, five or six, clearly abused, and yet in order for her to be free, what has to happen? 
Right? A price has to be paid. He has to buy her out of that slavery. From that price is what we call a ransom. It's whatever is due in order to buy someone back, buy someone out of their hopeless situation. So redemption focuses on that release made. Ransom highlights the price that was paid, right? the price for such redemption. And the question, friends, then becomes from our text, who pays the price? Right? Who pays the price? Because we all want to be delivered. We all want to be set free. We all want to be redeemed from the pain and struggles and for the cruel vicissitudes of life we all undergo. We want to be delivered from that. And the assumption so often that we have is, is that we must redeem ourselves. So take the Shawshank Redemption, right? considered by many to be one of the best movies of all time by, by critics. And if you know the movie, Andy Dufresne, like effectively the main character, his redemption, how does that come about? If he's to escape life behind bars under the brutality of the corrupt prison warden, well, redemption, that's up to him. It's his to secure. What, is he, what does he even say to his friend Red? He says, hey, Red, get busy living or get busy dying. In other words, it's up to you. No one's going to redeem you. You've got to do it yourself. And friends, that makes for a great movie, but it makes for terrible theology. Not good theology. For when it comes to the spiritual realm, Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8 says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. The ransom for life is costly and no payment is ever enough. Friends, that's just making explicit what our text assumes. No man can redeem another. Right? We can't redeem ourselves. And redemption, therefore, isn't just learning about how we can forgive ourselves. You know, that's often how the world talks about redemption and forgiveness. We've, we've got to learn how to forgive ourselves. You, know, you hear something like, you know, stop beating yourself up. All this loathing, all this introspection, it's, it's not good for you. Do you see how that's holding you back? You've got to learn to accept yourself for who you are. Learn to more freely forgive yourself. And then you'll be able to sort of move on with life. And friend, if that's how you've thought about redemption, if that's how you've thought about forgiveness, I mean no offense, but that is a terribly narcissistic way to view forgiveness and redemption. So say, for example, I horribly wronged my spouse, horribly so, and in the following days, I showed up and I came to her all sullen and brooding, and I said, I'm so sorry. I just, I just can't forgive myself. I mean, I know you're hurt, but can you help me? Can you teach me how I can learn to forgive me? A friend, I hope if you saw me do that, you would pull me aside and say, yeah, no offense, Brad, but you are a self-conceited, consumed jerk. Like self-absorbed, all the rest. That is you. That is not helpful in the situation. Why? Because I've wronged her. I've offended her. The point is not can we learn how to forgive ourselves. Redemption is not what we do for ourselves. Right? The one we've offended is God. It's him. And that's what Psalm 49 helps make clear. The ransom that is owed is to God. Because in our sin, we're not finally the ones that we've most aggrieved. He is. Our sins are fundamentally against him. And most crushingly, as the psalm says, no payment is ever enough. 
which isn't what the world thinks about sin. Sin's a small thing, right? Sin's a trifling thing. But the Bible and what Paul's helping us see is that sin has created a debt that is so deep that we have absolutely no hope of climbing out. We have not a prayer of doing so. So go ahead, I think the Powerball jackpot, the largest lottery ever, $1.6 billion. Okay, Bible's saying you can win it. You can't buy yourself out. You can become best friends with Jeff Bezos, you know, founder of, of Amazon, $120 billion or so. Best friends with him. He can liquidate all his holdings, and it still won't be enough. I read that our national debt is $21 trillion. So let's just assume $21 trillion, it stopped accruing interest, and you are going to start to work to pay it back, and you're going to be rather Herculean. You're going to pay $10,000 extra to the government every year. Friend, it would take you over 2 billion years to pay back that debt. A ridiculous amount of time, and yet recognize that it is more likely for you to pay off that debt than you could ever pay off the debt of your sins. Which is why the Bible treats sin as that serious because God is that holy. And it's serious business. The great riddle of the Old Testament, how can this good and holy God possibly redeem sinful humanity without compromising his justice and his goodness? How can he do it? That's the riddle of the Old Testament. That's what our text helps us to see. Because the psalmist goes on in Psalm 49, he says, but God will redeem my life from the grave. He will surely take me to himself. How does God do it? Our text says, he has made the payment through the blood of Christ. We have redemption, verse seven, through his blood. Through his blood. So Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, what, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And how do we know that God accepted the blood of Jesus as the payment, the ransom price for the sins of his people? Friend, how do we know that? What are we celebrating this morning? We're celebrating Easter. We're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the grave. It's something we celebrate not just this Sunday, but every Resurrection Sunday, what every Sunday is that the blood of Christ was sufficient to wipe out all of our debts, right? Where sin had enslaved us, Christ has set us free. He's emancipated us, which means if you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, the Bible's pleading with you that that great need you have is probably a need different than you thought you needed when you walked in this morning. You need this redemption. You need the ransoming blood of Christ, it's been said that learning is the great liberator. And if our most basic problem is lack of education, then learning would be the great liberator. But friend, more knowledge can't liberate you from your sinful condition. It improves self-esteem. That's not gonna liberate you from that condition. Learning how to forgive yourself is not gonna liberate you of your sins against God. The only hope that any of us have is to be liberated through the ransoming blood of Christ. That's what Katrina was reading about back in Hebrews 9. It's not the blood of bolts and goes, goats. It's the blood of Christ that secures what? Eternal redemption. And friends, that presents a problem for us because verse 7, we've trespassed against this God. You know, the image is that by our lives, God has set good and right boundaries and we have intentionally walked past those. We have crossed such boundaries, those good boundary lines. You know, as a child from the 80s, 
I can't help but always think of 80s movie quotes, which is why I'm going to have to go see Ready Player One. I haven't seen it yet. You can tell me about it. Sort of an homage to 80s pop culture. But one of those lines from Top Gun, you remember it, son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Well, the reality is, spiritually speaking, we write checks every single day that our bodies, in fact, our souls, they cannot cash. The only thing that can ransom us, only thing is the blood of Christ, because he's the only one who has lived that perfect life, the sinless life. And so Jesus' life alone can be that ransom. His blood alone can pay the price. It's his blood that sets us free if, if we would turn from our sins and trust in him and abandon all hopes to secure salvation for ourselves and look to him to do it as he's accomplished it. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what Christians believe. I don't know what you think Christianity is all about, but at its core, that is it right there. If you want to think more about that, Trey noted at the start of the service, we have two resources for you, things to think about, the death of Christ, the basic message of the gospel. We encourage you to take those. If a friend brought you this morning, talk to your friend. Talk to me. I wasn't always a Christian, right? I'm a, I don't know how I appear up here, but I'm a nice guy. I'm a pretty kind guy, pretty laid back. I'll be right down here. Come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about the gospel. But my Christian friends, I want this ransom to be a reminder of what your own redemption cost, to reflect on that. Because Paul says you're not your own. He says what? You were bought with a price, this blood, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You know, forgiveness isn't free. It came at a cost. And friend, I wonder what, what's the most valuable thing you own? So if you're a Christian, you're just thinking, what's the most valuable thing you own? Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's something with more sentimental value, some family heirloom that's been passed down. What do you do with those things? You protect them. You know, if it's a house, you insure it. Maybe you, you put it in a safe if it's a, if it's a smaller item. You know, I read recently the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold went just this past year for $350,000. It didn't come with a house, just the bottle of wine. And my guess is if you own that bottle for $350,000, you probably wouldn't be using it as a door jam. You're probably not going to say, hey, listen, I'm trying to learn how to juggle. I'm going to add this bottle to my list of of articles I'm gonna to toss up in the air. No, you're not gonna treat it callously or carelessly because you value it, obviously, if you're willing to spend that money for it. Oh, Christian, the most valuable thing you own is this redemption that has been bought by Christ's blood. So a question for you to ask yourself is do you treasure it or do you trifle with it in your sin? Do you cherish it? Do you guard it by watching your life and doctrine closely? Or do you cheapen this gift by flirting with sin? You know, maybe even in your own minds, you've been running through a scheme in which you can play with sin. You can take a bit of it. You can flirt with it. You can have some, and it will come at no great cost to you. But friend, that's cheapening this gift that God has given. That's not cherishing this greatest gift that you own. So just a few suggestions. If you want to think about how you can better cherish this redemption that you've been bought, right, not of your own, you know, make it a habit of asking others to share their testimony. Make it a habit of just saying, hey, how'd you come to Christ? How did that happen? Tell me your story. And I trust that you will be encouraged because few things ignite the, hype, ignite the heart more in gratitude than when we get to hear about God's work in the lives of other people, how he's done, how we might work in our own lives as well. You know, pray for your own evangelism. 
Pray for fruit and faithfulness in your evangelism. Because nothing will humble you more than reflecting on the grace that God has shown you. And when you see God pour out that redeeming grace in others, all that fires your heart. Friend, talk openly about your sin. That may seem counterintuitive. But, you know, before close friends, before your spouse, even your own kids, yeah, your kids too, be honest about your sin. Don't pretend you can hide it. Right? Don't kid yourself. I promise, like, your spouse, your kids, they will see it. They know it. They know it's there. You can't hide it all. You know, you talk openly about your sin and rightly done, it's a warning to you, it's a warning to them. It's a reminder that we're all saved by grace alone, right, not by good works. If you're not a member of a church, join a church. Sheep are safest inside pens, not out of them. So I don't know if any of you drive by Dean Street, but I think it's university property. They've got all these sheep that are there off Dean Street, and a number of them have these little lambs, cute little things, and I was driving by about two weeks ago, and one of them was, had gotten underneath the fence, and was aimlessly and rather happily trotting away from the pen. And of course, all of us driving by are in horror, because we know what's gonna happen to this little guy. He's not gonna make it long. Cars, 40 miles an hour, just feet from that fence. Friend, that's what it's like in the spiritual life when we wander outside those folds of protection that God has provided for us in the local church. We don't often last long. We need the protection, the security. We need the faithfulness of other brothers and sisters around us. So, friend, commit yourself to a church. Spend time with other Christians, studying and praying through Scripture. We cherish the gospel that way as we help others walk in the faith and others help us in the faith. Friend, redemption, it refers to our emancipation, that price is the ransom that Jesus paid, and all of this that we know, that we can talk of this morning, is because why? Because God is rich in grace. He's rich in grace. Redemption, ransom, that third and final movement, riches. Riches is the last thing I want us to reflect upon. Verse seven, we have it all according to, as Paul says, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. What a wonderful word is that, lavish. It speaks to the abundance of God's grace. That God's grace, when it comes, it doesn't just come in a trickle, right? It comes in a flood. When God pours out his grace, we're awash in his grace. I wonder if that's how you view God this morning. Do you view God as one who's lavish in his grace? I don't think we often view God that way. God's rather stingy in many of our minds. He's got a grace budget. It's a small budget. It's like a lot of our state budgets. You know, when all's said and done, there's not going to be a lot left for us. But the wonderful thing about God is that when it comes to God's children, he's got no budget with them. He can spend freely. He can spend profligately, abundantly upon his own children. He's not a Scrooge. He's not a penny-pinching miser. He doesn't walk by and say, oh, that poor soul, and sort of disdainfully, even contemptibly, sort of toss them a coin. Like, here, this might suffice. That's not the kind of God he is. And he holds nothing back. This God here, he spares no expense for his children. And the best evidence of that is the way in which he has displayed his love lavishly for us upon the cross. That God would not keep for himself his one and only son. But rather, Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Not a pittance, not many things, all things, all things. But friend, this doesn't mean God gives 
everything we want, when we want it, how we want it. Sometimes God in his kindness, he withholds what we so desperately want because he knows what we most need. And too often we confuse grace and blessing. They're not the same thing. Such that if we're not in a season of obvious blessing, sometimes we assume if it's not obvious blessing season that God's not gracious toward us. But friends, grace refers more to, to the benevolent disposition of God toward us. His favor, right? His goodwill, that's God's grace toward us. Whereas the way we often define blessing, it's the outward expression and evidence of that goodwill. But friends, we should never confuse the, the outward blessings with the disposition of God's own heart. Never confuse those two things. Because think of Job, was not God favorably disposed but, uh, towards Job? Job's friends thought, no, look at your life. Clear indication, God's not favorable toward you. But on the whole, Job knew better, and he knew that his present blessings weren't the measure of God's love. Jesus' own life is a wonderful example of that. As friends, many who are wicked have much, and many of us who are pious have had little, and sometimes will know seasons of both. But God's goal is that we become like Christ, and sometimes it will include evidence of God's blessing, but sometimes his favor is seen, and his graciousness is seen toward us in what we don't receive. We have a poem in our house. I may have shared it with you before, but it goes something like this. I, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. My well, friend, if you're a Christian, you know that to be true. The lavishness of God's grace, it's not reserved merely for outward blessing. There are some lessons best learned in the crucible of suffering. And though we won't have those outward manifestations of blessing, we have that inward blessing that none can take, that none can steal. And that's the blessing of a contented heart, a heart that knows that God is rich in grace and that his riches know no end. And one day, all that we believe by faith will become sight and we can rest in that and delight in that. Friend, do you know the lavishness of God's grace in your life? Can you speak to that? If someone asked you, has God been gracious to you? Could you tell them immediately how? Because I think it's easy to look around and say, well, I can see how he's been gracious to them. I can tell you all the ways in which he's been gracious to my neighbors or to my friends, but not necessarily to me. Because it's our, it's our nature to, to often dismiss the ways God has been lavish with us and to become fixated on what we don't have. And I wonder, friend, I wonder if that could be you. Are you blind to the way God has been lavish to you in his grace? Are you so consumed with what God hasn't given you that you can't see how he has blessed you? Do you think you know better than God? And in your anger, do you think that you're actually going to be happier, spiritually better, if you have that thing you say you need? Friend, let me encourage you sometime tonight, tomorrow, to stop and to think of the ways that God has blessed you. Sit around with friends. Sit around with family. Have that conversation. How has God been obviously lavish in his grace? Because he is. He always is. So friend, I want to return to that question I asked at the start. What do you need? 
We have needs. Advertisers convince us that's their job, that we have tremendous needs. Apple, masterful at building this need in the heart. But from our text, from your accountant, your attorney, your investment advisor, tax day's coming, right? All of them will talk about various needs you have, other needs, if you don't have those kind of professionals. We all have needs. But neither Apple or any financial professional or any politician, no one's going to be clear with that most basic need we all have. And in his kindness, God makes it so plain. That need that we have is to be redeemed. That we have to be set free from our slavish service to sin. And for as is the nature of sin, it promises so much and yet never delivers. Always leaving us empty. And it doesn't give. It only steals. But God in his prodigal grace has lavished us with riches. In Christ, this blood, this ransom treated us infinitely greater than we could ever deserve. So friend, the question of the text, will you remain in slavish service to sin, enslaved to sin, or will you be emancipated? Will you be set free from that service to sin and love Christ with all your heart? Know him for eternity. And that's the question of our text. It's the question you need to ponder as you go this morning. Do you know this Christ who's emancipated all of his children through his death on the cross? I pray you do. Let's go to him now and let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you praise. We give you praise as the one who has made our needs so clear. Lord, in all that cacophony of voices out there in the world that cry out to us about what our needs are, you have spoken, and you have spoken loudly to us, speaking of our need, crying out our need for redemption, to be set free, for the blood of Christ to ransom us because you've been so rich in grace toward us. Oh God, that is our need. Help us to see our need. Help us to cherish that grace, to speak of that grace to never grow cold to that grace. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.